Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John, I've never seen a point, even the crisis of 07, 08, where there's so many key decisions out there that we're all going to make off of a natural disaster. Well, let's start right there with Mohammed Al-Aryan, Queen's College president and Bloomberg opinion columnist, and I'm pleased to say joins us right now. Mohammed, two-way risk. Do you think we're appreciating the two-way risk a little bit more? We are in the marketplace. I think the Fed as yet hasn't. It is absolutely convinced that there is just one outcome. So its baseline is having a very high probability of materializing, whereas the marketplace is starting to think more in terms of a distribution of outcome that's tilted towards a hotter economy than what the Fed expects. Do you think, Mohammed, that's an error of judgment or just a factor of the seat you're sitting in? If you're a market participant, you have to recalibrate day to day the balance of risk. If you're a policymaker, you're just laser focused on the destination. No, that's new, John. Remember, we used to be forecast-based, which would allow you to course-correct as you saw information come in. Now, the Fed on this new monetary framework has become outcome-based. And when you are outcome-based, you don't course-correct as you go along. You wait for the outcome. And what the market is realizing now is that there's a downside to being outcome-based, when there are structural changes going on. The big message of the huge data miss, be it on Friday or yesterday, is that when there are structural changes going on in an economy, it becomes very difficult for economists to forecast with any degree of accuracy. Mohammed, I want to go to the mathematical hierarchy, the architecture that we have right now. And we do this in honor of your Queen's College and the mathematical bridge that I know you've uh, walked across. The mathematical bridge right now to 2023, it's not in any of the textbooks, is it? So then what do we use? So we have to have an open mindset and a lot of humility. We have to recognize that we have to think in terms of a range of scenarios and not get become hostage to a single baseline. And we have to be able to, to course correct. You know, this is the lesson of the mm-hmm. past when you have big structural changes. What's so important here, Dr. Alarian, is the idea that we have a set of outcomes. The gloom crew, which you're not part of, pounces on this every day with a great negativity. Do you have a confidence that corporate officers can adapt and adjust to some form of set of positive outcomes? Yeah, the ones I speak to are very open to the possibility that there are more outcomes out there than they've faced in the past. So what you hear over and over again is this notion of resilience, this notion of optionality, being able to change your mind, this notion of agility, being able to move quickly when you have clarity. But they they are much more data dependent than policymakers have become. Policymakers now are focused on a destination with a degree of conviction, Tom, that isn't matched with foundation and evidence. And that's really unusual in our recent economic history. And John, you saw this yesterday with Citigroup, where they talked about the resilience of the United Kingdom economy. And Mohammed, you've said they've been held hostage, policymakers. This Federal Reserve is held hostage by its own framework. 
How do you think they're being held hostage right now? So the framework was the product of a certain world. And that was the world pre-pandemic. It was a world of deficient aggregate demand that had persisted for a while. That was the world the Fed was formulating its framework for. And I have a lot of sympathy that that framework made sense for that world. In a world like that, where the supply side is relatively stable structurally, where you have a persistent deficiency of aggregate demand, you go to average inflation targeting, and you keep on signaling to the market over and over again that you are outcome-based. That is not the world we live in today. It is very hard for anybody to argue that we have a deficiency of aggregate demand. We don't, neither on the public sector nor on the private sector. And on the, on the supply side, there are fundamental structural changes going on. In a world like that, you need optionality. You need to be able to change your mind. You cannot be pinned in a corner that says, I will make up my mind after I see many months of data. Because by that time, if you're wrong, playing catch up is really problematic. And what you're seeing is the market is actually being much more measured in how it's looking at risk, while the Fed is pinned in a corner, holding on to its conviction, even though there isn't even though the evidence increasingly says, be open-minded, show a little bit more humility. Mohammed, I asked this question of Vice Chair Clarida. How will you know if you're wrong? What do you think will tell them if they're wrong? So he answered that question to you. He said, by the end of the year or the beginning of next year, we will know. And that's why they are not, quote, thinking about thinking. So think how many stages you have. You have to go from thinking about thinking to thinking. Then you've got to start explaining how you're going to taper. Then you're going to start tapering. And remember, they had no good answer to Mike McKee's question about what if you buy 110 million billion a month? What if you buy 100 billion a month? Right. So, so they are very far away because they are in this outcome-based approach. So, and that's what the marketplace realizes, is by the time the Fed figures out, did they make the right call on, on transitory inflation? If they are wrong, the adjustment process itself could end up sending the economy so into Mohammed, recession. So, Mohammed, let me just jump in because I think this is really important. When Mike McKee asked this question, does 120 billion get it done? 110, 100 billion, the pushback from the likes of Neil Kashgari, it's always the same. This is the labor market, it's weak and we need to support it. What I think they're failing to communicate right now is how billions upon billions of dollars of MBS purchases actually help them achieve that goal. Do you think that asset purchase program is helping them achieve that goal, especially when we've spent the last several weeks talking about a supply side problem? It's not helping, John, because they can't deal with the supply side of the economy. They can't lift supply bottlenecks by flooding us with liquidity. They cannot improve the functioning of the labor market. They cannot open schools with liquidity. They cannot improve childcare with liquidity. They cannot have a better matching of skills to demand with liquidity. And that's the problem. Um, we should spend more time looking at what the Bank of Canada did, what the Bank of England did, and say, why is it that they feel confident they can taper a little bit, whereas the Fed right. is really afraid 
Oh, oh, Mohammed, this is like a three-hour conversation. Our control room's deciding if we want to go there right now. I have another biscuit baked in 1448. Mohammed, I want this is really, really important, folks, what we're talking about here. And I'm going to go back, Dr. O'Leary, into your essay of five years ago on the delusion of liquidity. Let us speak now, and I'm not putting this into your words, the delusion of outcome-based. We're trying to rationalize an ex-post structure. As you say, and I'll really lean on Canada here, they've had the courage to get away from an ex-post structure. What is the mechanism the United States does or uses the Federal Reserve to drag themselves away from a deeply ex-post reality? I hope a robust internal discussion that right. can be conducted in a, in a safe zone that looks at the evidence and doesn't <clears throat> get dogmatic in terms of if we change our framework at this stage, we lose credibility. That's gonna be absolutely critical. They have to be open-minded given the structural changes going on in the economy. TK, do you not think that the stakes are higher for the Federal Reserve? Yes, versus, say, oh the no, Bank they are just because of dollar, just because of dollar. We're talking about tapering at the Federal Reserve. Can you imagine the impact we would have had? Well, I wonder that, what your thoughts are on that. This is so important, John, as you bring up. I mean, Mohammed, what is the outcome of a Canada-like taper by Jerome Powell? Well, that's what scares them, because they remember not just 2013, May, June, but they also remember the massive U-turn they had to do in January of 2019 when the marketplace didn't like the message. Mohammed, they're back to the Bank of Japan 15 or 18 years ago. That's how timid right. they are. And, 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 and Tom, the, the question that the marketplace asks is, what if we're wrong? What's the recoverability of the mistake? How recoverable is a mistake? That is what people in the marketplace ask. So, so if you think in that world, where is, there's lots of uncertainty, I may end up making a mistake. So instead of insisting that I'm gonna be right, let me ask the question, if I make a mistake, what mistake would I rather make? I think you would end up with a different outcome than where the Fed is today. So I assume you read the Bill Dudley piece earlier this week, Mohammed, on where the Fed funds rate could go. I really struggled with it. Many others did too. This idea that we could tolerate a Fed funds rate with a four handle. What did you make of that piece? So he's talking purely in terms of policy and the economy can tolerate higher rates. And I'm not advocating higher rates, by the way. I'm ad advocating a taper of the QE program. Yeah. I just want to be straight. Um, the problem, John, is you saw it yesterday. You know, we focused on the fact that equity sold off. But you know what? Bonds sold off. Bitcoin sold off. Gold sold off. And what you see is the reverse of what we've seen earlier, which is when there's some doubt about the liquidity paradigm, which has supported all asset classes, the so-called everything rally, when some doubts surface, and very small doubts have surfaced so far, nothing major, markets sell off across the board. There is nowhere to hide. And that's what the Fed is afraid of, that you have a marketplace where there is nowhere to hide. And when there's nowhere to hide, people start doing um, silly things. So that's what the Fed is afraid of. It doesn't want unsettling financial volatility to contaminate the economy. The problem is, if it ends up being wrong, you will have at the same time policy slamming the brakes on and the marketplace tightening as well. And that's how you end up in a recession. That's why it's better to be somewhat preemptive than to wait till the last thing. I don't think there will be but certainly, I would argue they need to be. So, Mohammed, just a final question then. How would you be positioned ahead of what you think could be a messy summer? 
it is really hard because you're being you're being challenged both on return generation and risk mitigation at the same time. So sophisticated investors will look at tail hedges, and that's why the VIX moved the way it moved yesterday. Um, but for the average investor, it's hard. Now, the average investor, in fact, all of us are hoping that the Fed is right. Because if the Fed is right on its huge transitory inflation call, then we can have a smooth transition, both economic policy as well as a smooth market adjustment. But it's a huge gamble at this point. Mohammed, I want to go to Cambridge Economics, and unfortunately, we have very little time, not from Thomas Malthas or the laureate Angus Deaton, but I want to go back to the idea of Nikki Kaldor, who believed in a public solution. Are we going to get a public solution here, or have we overreached? So, so the public solution comes to make the Fed more comfortable about its ability to taper by being better on prudential supervision and regulation. One of the things that is not spoken about is that risk has migrated and morphed from the banks to the non-banks, but the supervisory and regulatory system is seriously lagging this. And I suspect if the Fed had more confidence in the supervision and regulation of non-banks, it would feel more comfortable on the monetary policy side. Mohammed, this was way too serious. We didn't even get to talk about your meds. Got that right. I'm shocked. I worked succeed. Successful interview. I don't, want Tim to, I, don't, I don't want Tom to jinx them. So please, let's not talk about my Mets. We are all quietly watching this. We've seen this movie before. We get hopeful, we get dragged in, and then we get dumped. So, Seven-game so, winning know, streak, am I right? Is it seven games now? John, and first place. <laughs> We're not commenting on either the seven-game winning streak or first place. Hey, Mohamed, it's good to catch up. It's great to catch up. It's really good to see you. Mohamed Al-Erin there, Queen's College president and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Always generous, Dennis Gartman joins us now, retired editor of the Gartman Letter with the University of Akron Endowment Fund as well. Dennis, I got eight ways to go, but I got to start with the market reaction here. You and I know this is not a correction. It's not a bear market. It's a little bit of what the French call agitation. What do you do when you get this cacophony of events? I think you have to be very careful. I've really not liked stocks for the last two months, especially. I have not liked high tech. I've I like the things I've made it some, somewhat famous. I like the things that if you drop them on your foot will hurt. I've liked copper, steel, tin, aluminum, automobiles, tires, that sort of thing, railroads, those sorts of very simple things. But I've been very ambivalent. Actually, I've been very bearish about the stock market generally. And I think that we're going to have a bounce today. You can't take the Dow down, what, 11, 1,200 points in the course of three days and not have some return, some bounce from the lows. But what bothers me or what we should watch for is how the volume comes in. The volume came in yesterday on the downside very hard. If we have a bounce today and the volume is less, if the volume is limited, and I think it shall be, that'll be a deleterious right. circumstance. So be very, I, I still think you have to be very careful. Okay. I think that the Dow can go down another several thousand points yeah, from well, here Dennis, without too much difficulty and still be within the confines of a long-term multi-year secular bull market. But you could fall quite some distance in the next month or two. Dennis, you and I have argued over this on a beverage of our choice, and that is a study <laughs> of volume. I don't believe in it. You do. Is the yeah. volume study today the same it was what was when you and I were holding a Standard & Poor's blotter in our hand trying to figure out what to buy next? I think it does, honestly. I, I still believe that good markets go up on strong volume and fall on weak volume. And weak markets go up on lesser volume and down on strong volume. And that's what we've seen in the course of the past several months is that the rallies have been on very light volume. 
The declines have been Fair. on very steep volume, and I think that that was the precursor to this weakness. We'll see if, if my thesis holds. We'll see if your thesis holds. But I think right now, watching the volume is a very important circumstance to pay attention to, and I think it's bearish at this point. Dennis, some people trying to work out how they protect themselves, because quite clearly, if the risk is inflation, then you don't protect yourself with treasury bonds because yields were high yesterday too. What do you do? Yeah. Do you raise some cash, keep some dry powder? When you pull back a de-risk, what does that actually look like, Dennis? Well, as the chairman of the University of Akron's endowment, I actually pushed hard and, and we, we moved in February to reduce our exposure to the equities market by 3%, which in, in endowment land, that's a material change. When you reduce anything by one or two or 3%, you've made a material change. And we actually took a position in gold to hedge out uh, inflation risk. That's proved to be wise. I've been very lucky thus far from given the fact that we've made that change in very late February. The Russell's down about four or 5% from that level and gold's up five or 6%. Call it good luck, call it fortune, call it maybe a, a wise trade, but I think reducing exposure to the equities market, raising a little cash, buying a little gold, uh, buying uh, tips probably is not a bad idea, and buying monthly dividend paying uh, ETFs that, uh, that are well covered. I think that's the, that's the way to go. Raising cash is not a bad thing at this point. Dennis, in my let's opinion. talk about gold because that's a really, really interesting yeah. point. When you moved, as you describe it, that has been a good play. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a move off yeah. the March lows. It hasn't worked all year, though, even though inflation has dominated the conversation. Yesterday, another example, it was down about 1%, even though the key yeah. theme was inflation. What's been going on, do you think, Dennis, just in terms of the relationship between inflation and gold? I think millennials at the balance like to, like to speculate or like to take positions with their, with their stimulus checks uh, in, in Bitcoin and in Ethereum and the rest of them. And I think that that's been a drain at the margin, at the all price of all commodities, all price of all stocks, all price of all bonds is actually made at the margin. When the last 2% of the buyers become sellers, when the last 2% of the sellers become buyers, that's when price changes. And I think we've seen yeah. some <clears throat> movement on the part of investors into Bitcoin, into the cryptocurrencies and away from gold. However, I'll think that the several thousand years history of gold will, will, will trump the five-year, six-year, mm -hmm. seven-year uh, history of, of uh, the cryptocurrencies. But very, I think it's cryptos that have been the, the pressure point. Very no quickly question. here, Dennis, it's $96 at $4 a gallon for you to fill up the Bentley. You know, 90 liters is a 24-gallon <laughs> tank. Tell You're living in the heart of this no gasoline yeah. thing. Is it 1978 all over again? It feels like it. It has that that look to it. There are the, the lines at some of the service stations around here in Southeast Virginia, especially on Tuesday, were very long, very, very surprising. It's uh, you can find gasoline in the morning when the tanker trucks come in, but by noon they're they're running out of running out of gas, and it does have that feel of the 1970s when the odds and even license plate numbers were allowed to go and buy gasoline. It's a it, it, this will resolve itself. Obviously, the uh, Colonial Pipeline said that they're going to be back online or came back online yeah. last night. It's the last mile that's difficult. By the weekend, we'll be oh, it, it should be resolved. I'm so sorry. There's a typo there, Dennis. I got to get this corrected. Dennis Garbin, thanks so much. Wonderful uh, to see you. This is a really, really important interview, and let me put it in context. James Sweeney literally staked his career three, four years ago by saying, Europe, get over it. There's not going to be deflation. There's not going to be disinflation. You're wrong, wrong, wrong. The uh, Credit Suisse chief economist joins us uh, right now as the tables have been turned towards worry of rising inflation. James Sweeney, should we fear a redux of the 1960s? Mm. Um, 
No, I think we should be open-minded to that risk. But I think what we're really talking about here on, on the upside is, you know, core inflation running 3% for a year, something like that. Um, that That's not our forecast. It's a little bit higher than our forecast. But I think the evidence is mounting that that kind of outcome could happen. If that happens, that's not the end of the world. That's kind of maybe it's 1966 to 1967, 68, before inflation really got out of hand at the end of the 60s and, and into the 1970s. But the Fed is going to handle that in, in a different way than they than they did mm-hmm. in, in the 1960s. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not the end of the world, but it is a big change for financial markets. And thinking about what happens to monetary policy uh, if we get that outcome is is really important for, for asset price. How are you expecting inflation expectations, consumer inflation expectations to shape up, James, given the experience that they're having right now in this country? You know, I don't really know what consumer inflation expectations are. Um, you know, these are these are strange surveys. Uh, most people I know uh, don't have a clear sense of, of, of what they're answering when they when they answer that question. It usually those surveys, people are, are saying what's happened to gasoline prices. Um, but, you know, the question is, are the surveys stable? Like in, in my view, that when inflation expectations increase and it leads to inflation, what that really means is not that a bunch of surveys jumps. It means that people have started buying more stuff because they think the stuff is going to be more expensive in the future. So to me, the expectation has to be embedded in the demand behavior to actually get a problematic inflation spiral. Yeah. And, you know, the risk of that is 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 rising. But um, but we're not there right now. We're in a we're in a data fog period where we're reopening and there's vaccinations and there's base effects, you know, there's and, and there's supply chain issues. So, you know, the risk of that is rising, but we should be a little careful about jumping to extreme conclusions. That's the point I'm trying to get to here, James, because we can have this real knee-deep, intelligent conversation. You can run me through all the different parts in this inflation basket. They're driving inflation higher. It's the experience of everyday people with prices that will really set the tone here. And I'm trying to understand how you will gauge when you will know that those expectations for higher prices become embedded in prices and become higher prices, and this becomes yeah. a virtuous cycle. Well, there's two, there's two things. I mean, one is I want to see a demand acceleration. So uh, right now, it's going to be really hard for retail sales to continue to accelerate. I mean, maybe tomorrow will be up, but in level terms, we're probably near a, a, a longer term peak in retail sales because we've just had so much income. But on the services side, which is two thirds of inflation, it's a little different because uh, we all want to rush out of our houses and consume in-person services, recreational services. Those are labor-intensive businesses. They're going to have to hire a lot of people. What's going to happen to wages? So so we're going to be looking at demand, but we're also going to be looking at how much wage pressure are we seeing. And I think it's going to take a little while before we have good information on wages. I mean, our average hourly earnings are not good information on on wages. But the anecdotes are definitely mounting that, that that this process is at least in its early stage. You guys are writing my script. It's right where I wanted to go, James Sweeney. What's joyous about your notes is you got microeconomics in them, and you really emphasize this time around that supply, demand, and inventories really matter. But with that, how do you digest the McDonald's headline we saw an hour ago? John, help me here. All of a sudden, we got one, two, three, four, five companies going up to 10,000 ex-employees, clearly near $15. How does that filter into supply and demand? Well, I 
I mean, that's that's your margin issue, actually. That's your that's your wage issue. This is a labor market supply and demand issue when you're when you're talking yes. about that. So, you know, the question is, you know, first, OK, so McDonald's is facing a little bit of trouble hiring workers. They need to raise wages. That's fine. We understand. So that eats into their margins. Are they going to raise prices on their food as a result? They might not. They might just eat the margin increase. We, we don't know. But I, I think it's, it's you know, this is, again, just another symptom. I mean, the commodity price increase even is a symptom. There are symptoms all over the place, but we need, you know, the, the nerds in the data need to see sufficient breadth across these both inflation and price indices to, you know, to, to, to be confident that we're going to actually have a real issue that is unlike anything in, in the past in the past 30 years. For now, you know, you're looking at inflation overshooting right now from base effects potentially coming a little bit lower after that. But is it going to settle back down in kind of two and a half percent or a little lower? Or is it going to be kind of three, three percent higher? And again, from a market perspective, that's absolutely critical. From the Fed's perspective, in either way, they're going to say it's temporary. But that's not, you know, who cares? Temporary. What what we care about is when are they going to hike? Is this going to change the tapering schedule? How's the market going to react? Is this a regime right. shift that we can even get inflation up here? Because not long ago, as you know, a lot of people thought you couldn't. James, James Sweeney, very quickly here. Uh, the Brethren in Zurich email in and say, would you please ask him a question about the German 10-year? James Sweeney, what is the symbolism when Germany 10-year goes positive as Swiss 20-year did ages ago? Well, I mean, you know, European yields are, are, are rising, and, and there's a little <laughs> bit of an expectation now that, that European growth a few months out, could actually start accelerating relative to the U.S. because we've had our massive stimulus push um, in the spring, and it turns out they're actually vaccinating at a reasonable pace now uh, across across Europe. So rates are rising. But you know, going back to the inflation part, it's hard to see much of that inflation in Europe. Historically, when you get a proper inflation wave going way back, they tend to be pretty correlated across major economies. But but right now. You know, the inflation outlook in Europe is going to have a little base effect, just like the U.S., but the big picture is, is you're still looking at sluggish inflation well below 2% for the foreseeable future in, in the Eurozone. James Smart, as always, we expect nothing less. James Sweeney yeah. there, Credit Suisse Chief Economist. Right now... Julie Norman is with us with the University College uh, London. She is a political science professor, and she is so competent, she has a set of wheelhouses. And one of them is the Levant and the challenges of Israel uh, with all the various Arab nations of the region. Dr. Norman, good morning. We have 1948, we have 1967. Can you say that 2021 alludes to those periods of conflict? Well, good morning, Tom. Obviously, what we're seeing now is the highest level of violence and escalation that we've seen in a number of years. With that said, it mirrors very much the Gaza wars that we saw in pretty recent memory, 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, when we again saw this kind of perfect storm of events coming together that quickly escalated into rockets coming into Israel and airstrikes going back to Gaza. And Unfortunately, with that, of course, the civilian casualty rates uh, going up very quickly, already over 60 today. 
I, I want to get out the map, but I don't want to look at the rocket trajectory. We can study that. We'll have experts tell us about that. But Professor Norman, I'm fascinated by the distance of Gaza to the old city and to the mosque under question, one of the great sites of, of Islam. What is the distance for the people of Gaza to what they venerate in the old city of Jerusalem? Well, Tom, I think what's so important to underscore here is that Jerusalem and the Aqsa Mosque in particular are very important to Palestinians and definitely to Palestinian Muslims, no matter where they're located in their region. And indeed, Hamas was very uh, savvy over these last few weeks in linking much of their politics and campaigns to what was going on in Jerusalem and linking the Palestinian cause, as always, to what was happening in Jerusalem. In terms of physical distance, it's not too far either, but due to the way the restrictions are set up right now in Israel-Palestine, people from Gaza have not been able to go to Jerusalem for um, for years now, but still very much uh, right. resonant in terms of what it means to people. Shocking. It's shocking, Dr. Norman, the fragility of democracy in Israel. I've been told by some reports in the Times and the Washington Post of the election transfer being within minutes, literally, before this war came out. How do you link the Netanyahu transfer of power, if you will, to this conflict? Are they truly linked or are they separate and unimaginably close uh, issues? Well, everything is aligning in a certain way right now. I think the tinderbox that has uh, erupted, so to speak, in these last few weeks was due to a number of causes. But what we have seen is the leadership crisis on both sides feeding into it. And we see politicians on both sides definitely exploiting the moment. For Netanyahu, of course, right now, coming out of this fourth attempt to try and form a government, unable to do so, he is now trying to frame his mm -hmm. response to this as showing why he should stay in power. His uh, opponents and critics are, of course, saying this is a reason why it's time for him to step aside. And on the Palestinian side, we again see a lot of jockeying between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas for who can be right. the voice for Palestinians and for resistance. Julie, brief us on the new Hamas. They have evolved over the years. Americans have a memory of a most difficult Beirut. There's Fatah and the rest. Give us a tone of the new Hamas, even as Israel announces they have assassinated selected leaders. Yes, yeah, so Hamas uh, has held control of the Gaza Strip for the last 15 years. That was after they were successful in the 2006 legislative elections in Palestine. That was a real shift for Hamas and a kind of quasi-normalization from being solely a resistance militant group to being a political group as well. Now they kind of operate with both of those wings, the political group um, governing in a way in Gaza, whereas their uh, militant wing carrying out these rocket attacks primarily. Um, still in some ways have popular support in terms of being a voice of resistance, in terms of their social services, but a lot of disillusionment in Palestine also with Hamas mm -hmm. because of their lack of ability to govern properly. Julie Norman, thank you so much there on uh, the conflict that we see in Gaza and many people saying it edges towards all-out war. She is with the University of College of London. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. 
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.